want to take you backward in time to maybe a, a memory from the past. Maybe for some of you this is before your time in TV. But for many of us, it will be a little different, but something like this. The show opened, camera zoomed in, and you heard, It's a wonderful day in the sanctuary. A wonderful day in the sanctuary. It's a wonderful day in the sanctuary. Would you be saved? Could you be saved? Today we're going to talk about heaven and hell, boys and girls. Can you say heaven and hell? Watch your language. Would you be my neighbor? Fred Rogers, a Presbyterian minister, children's minister, became famous in Pittsburgh with a TV show where he got the whole world thinking about what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be neighborly, what it means to think about life through the lens of being a neighbor. He had a friend, his his friend's name was uh, Francois Clemens, who grew up in the ghetto. 1969 was when this episode occurred. He turned to his friend Francois and said, I would like you to play a police officer on my show. Growing up in the ghetto, who we know as Officer Clemens hated police officers, had a real bad attitude toward police officers, and really struggled with playing a police officer. But Fred Rogers felt like this was important, and he became the first African-American actor as a reoccurring character on a children's show of all times. In an episode 1969, Fred Rogers came in. Instead of walking and sitting and changing clothes in his usual spot, he walked through and he said, well, hey, boys and girls, let's head outside. He went outside. It's a a warm day today. And he had a, a swimming pool set up. So sometimes on a hot day, I like to cool off my feet. And he put his feet in the pool with the hose running. And he said, well, look, it's Officer Clemens. Come on over. You want to you share the pool with me? And Officer Clemens took off his shoes and took off his socks. And Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens just sat in the pool sharing a quick moment. And Fred Rogers said, sometimes a moment like this, a small moment like this can make all the difference. And Francois Clemens talked about how powerful and yet simple and symbolic that gesture was in 1969 that brown skin and white skin would share the same water. And that Fred Rogers, as a person of faith, was communicating to a simple gesture that they weren't just comrades, they were friends. And they were sharing an experience together. Because they were neighbors. And long before Fred Rogers made being a neighbor famous in America... Jesus made being a neighbor famous with the story we're going to look at today. It's a story of what it means to be a neighbor and what it means to think about neighborly habits differently. And Jesus is going to ask us to make a switch. If you've never seen that episode of Mr. Rogers, by the way, here's the scene of Fred Rogers and Officer Clemens sitting together in the pool. And Jesus is going to challenge us today of what does it look like for us to shift from asking, well, who's my neighbor, who do I have to forgive, and who I don't have to forgive? Who do I have to treat nicely, and who can I lay out my anger to? Who counts and who doesn't count? If they've done something that bad to me, am I allowed to sort of give up on them? That's the question of who's my neighbor. Who do I not have to act the full Christian life toward? Versus am I a neighbor? Who is my neighbor, which is all about what I don't have to do, who do I not have to extend mercy to, 
versus am I being a neighbor to everyone around me? That's the shift Jesus is going to challenge us to. It begins with a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. Now, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. But this isn't a lawyer the way you and I think of a lawyer. This was a religious institution, a scribe, a priest, a specific type one called a lawyer. Behold, a certain lawyer, an expert in the law, stood up and tested Jesus. And immediately we see that his motive is not to learn about God. It's a test. It's a challenge. So he comes to Jesus to try and entrap him. And here's the question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And already his framework is off. He's already thinking about this through a religious framework. What do I need to do? But what Jesus is offering is about what he's going to have done for us. And this is what happens when you get mixed up into religion, whether it's Catholic religion or Protestant religion or Baptist religion. Whatever flavor you get mixed into, it always becomes about what you do. And then you have the pressure of do, 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 do. You can never do, do enough. And then when you, when you do, do, do well one day, well, you feel really good. And then you're filled with pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and entitlement. And then the next day you don't do, 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 do very well. And you end up stepping in do, do because you find yourself filled with shame and guilt because you couldn't live up to what you're supposed to do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing his heart, flips the tables and says, well, you tell me what's written in the law. What's your reading of it? He said, well, I'm supposed to love the Lord your God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and all my mind. And even throws in the parallel verse in Leviticus, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, you've answered rightly. Go do that and you'll live. You'll inherit life. Apparently the man must have thought for a moment, well, my whole heart, my whole mind, all of my strength... Quick question, follow up, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Because when I think of, of who I'm treating, and he says, wishing to justify himself, really, he realized he didn't love everyone the same. So who counts and who doesn't? Who's my neighbor? Because I've been nice to a lot of people. And the word neighbor in the Jewish thinking came from Leviticus 19.18. It was the word uh, reya. And the word reah was related to another Hebrew word, which is roe, which is they got the word of pasturer. And so the idea was your neighbor was not a best friend, but somebody that kind of had the same kind of job you did, a fellow shepherd, a fellow pasturer. And it was somebody who was a, maybe an acquaintance, somebody who lived near you, around you, people who were like you. It was how you loved your neighbor. But Jesus is going to take this definition of neighborness and he's going to blow it out of the water. He's going to say, no, how you treat the people who've hurt you? How you treat the people who disagree with you? How you treat the people that you don't even like? That's going to be a test of how neighborly you are. But Jesus does it by telling a story. He says, we've got to, we've got to stop asking the question, Who's my neighbor? So we can figure out who we don't have to love or don't have to extend mercy to or don't have to be good to or don't have to be nice to. Stop asking who's my neighbor and start asking, am I a neighbor? Jesus answered, so let me tell you a story. A certain man was making his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
on his way, he was ambushed by thieves. And they beat him. They stripped him of his clothes. And they left him there on the side of the road, half dead. It just so happened that at that moment, a a priest came by on the same road, on the road to Jericho. And, glory, glory, hallelujah. Ooh, yeah. And seeing the man, he passed by on the other side. A certain Levite came by, by later, and, and he made his way, and he too, oh, 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 passed on by the other side. And then a third man came down the road, and it was a Samaritan. Oh, the audience would have recalled a Samaritan in the story. The Samaritan who think differently than we do about worship. Politically, they're different. Racially, they're different. Oh, not a Samaritan in the story. He'll probably come and kick the man. A Jewish man on the side of the road. And a certain Samaritan came upon this man, and he had compassion on him. And he got down and bandaged him with his own bandages. And then he poured oil upon the man. And wine. He then picked up the man, put him on his animal, and took him to a nearby inn where he gave two denarii, that's two days' wages. He, he took care of him that night on his own. And then he gave those two denarii to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. I must go away for a while, but I will return. And when I return, I will repay you anything else you need. Jesus finishes the story and he turns back to the lawyer and says, So, question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And this thief is thinking, I mean, this lawyer is thinking, I do not want to have to affirm the Samaritan. So he doesn't even call him by name. He who showed mercy on him was a neighbor. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. The equivalent today would be if I told the story and Donald Trump was the one who got beaten up and the third character was Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Or if it had been Hillary Clinton had been beaten up and the third character was Donald Trump. Which one showed neighborly behavior to the other? (laughs) The third one did. (laughs) Now there's several things embedded in this story that I think challenge us to neighborly conduct. The first, that Jesus is a genius. If he had made the Samaritan the man who got beat up, everyone hearing the story would have thought, that's right, walk on the other side. That's right, leave that man. He deserves it. But Jesus purposely makes the certain man Jewish so that the audience of Jewish people will identify with him. Jesus wants us to identify with the neighbor, to put ourselves in the neighbor's place. We are the one who's been beaten We're the one struggling with that temptation. We're the one who's been stripped of our clothing. We're the one who's been left for dead. And how often when we think of someone we're angry at or feel justified about or feel ticked off at, we've got a legitimate case for why we are. 
And we separate ourselves and say, I would never do that. I would never feel that. I would never be tempted by that. I would never be involved in that kind of situation. I'm not like that. But Jesus purposely constructs this story so that he wants us to identify with the person who was beaten and left to generate compassion in us. There's a lot of folks around Horizon who've tried to do that, to say, I am that neighbor. I had a friend who came to my office about two weeks ago. I said, Chad, I used to work with adoption and, uh, and uh, foster care in Phoenix, in Arizona. They had a statewide agency. Every child in the, in the system, there was a board that made sure they had an advocate every six months to make sure somebody was speaking for them, getting them the best kind of care in the foster system. And I came to Ohio several years ago, and, and there's nothing like that here. And I felt the Holy Spirit tapping me on the shoulder. and saying, I want you to look into putting this together. Find out you can be an advocate. This person was a lawyer. And, and I want you to use your lawyering skills. And I want you to think, not those foster children somewhere, someplace. That's you. You are the foster child. You need an advocate. You need someone to speak up for you. She was just beginning the journey of saying, who should I talk to? And do you have anyone you might advise? Because God's telling me to be the advocate for my neighbor. Another guy recently, about a week ago, he called me up and he said, Chad, I, I got invited by my family who was very irreligious. I mean, very irreligious to speak at the funeral. And I thought, if I say anything about faith or Jesus, I'm going to split the whole family. But they didn't know any pastors, so they knew I was religious, so they asked me to pray. And I knew the man who died. He was my nephew. He was 56 years old. And I had been telling him about faith and telling him about faith. And he had rejected, rejected, shut it down. And we had a great relationship, but he just didn't want to talk about faith. When I came to his hospital room, he was in a coma. But nurses and doctors had told me that when you're with somebody in a coma, often they can hear you. When they come out, they talk about conversations they heard. And so I just said, come on, one more time. It's not too late. We all fall short of God's standards. Just reach out to God. Reach out to God. He still wants to reach out to you. This is your last chance. This might be your last chance. He said, Chad, I witnessed a miracle. He goes, no, maybe it was just his body reacting. But as I asked him to reach out, he wasn't moving, but his eyes suddenly began to bounce back and forth in a way they weren't before and they weren't after. I felt like it was the only response he could give, and he was trying to reach out and respond to what I was saying. I was asked to speak at the funeral, and I asked if I could more than just pray, tell the story of all the times I'd talked about faith in Jesus and how we'd had a great relationship, but he didn't respond. But I felt like in that moment, God gave me one more chance to say, all of us by mercy are just reaching our hand up and hoping God will grab it. His mother, who's not particularly religious, came up after the funeral and said, thank you for that story. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your friendship. And here was a man who said, my nephew who's rejected God and you know, rejected what I had to say is still my neighbor. And I want to advocate for him. I want to reach for him. If I was in a coma and I had just a few seconds left and one last chance, I would want somebody to help me one last time reach up to the merciful hand of God. We had a group of... Uh, Students and adults who just headed down to Happy Church, one of the poorest areas of the country that we send uh, families and students and junior high trips and, and adult trips down to help. It's one of the largest groups, like over 60 people went down for this particular trip. And because of the money that the team brought, over $4,000 was given to all the different ministries going on there in this area of Happy Church. And we sent a, a pallet of 
uh, sort of rubberized, chewed up rubber to put on their playground so it's not so muddy anymore. But while they were there, they got a chance to give away $5,000 worth of free shoes. But they weren't totally free. Somebody was being a neighbor. There was a young woman who grew up in an equally impoverished neighborhood, and she never had shoes for the first day of school. She has sent, built her career, and she's now a model. But as a model, she has not forgotten what it was like to go to school and not be able to afford new shoes. So every year she writes a check for $5,000 to her neighbors, kids she doesn't know, and asks Happy Church and our team to go and buy as many shoes as they could get for $5,000 so each one of those kids would have new shoes to go to school with. It's being a neighbor. It's hard to be a neighbor. It's easier just to stay away. And that's why I think the second part of this story that Jesus is sort of unpacking is he doesn't want us to pass by or look away from people's needs. Because that's what happened with the Levite. That's what happens with the priest. By chance, a certain priest came down the road. When he saw him, and he did see him, it wasn't like he missed him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came and looked, again, they looked, but they passed on the other side. And there's a lot of Jewish humor here, but you don't appreciate the humor if you don't know the road. There was one road that went between Jerusalem and Jericho. Everyone knew this road. It would be like me referencing 285 or 75 or 74. The Jericho Road. And it was laughable that you could go by the other side. I got a chance to hike this road several years ago. Here's what it looks like. This thin, thin path on the side of cliffs is the Jericho Road. If a man gets ambushed and is laying on the road, number one, you can't go around him. You take two steps to the left and you fall down a ravine. Other places of Jericho Road you can see is a giant wadi. That's what they call their valleys with a river down there. The Jericho Road is this thin little path. You can't walk on the other side. To walk on the other side would be to go back 20, 30 miles, and then there's no path over there anyway. You'd be, you know, mountain climbing your way across. So Jesus is laughing by saying to himself, and of course those Levites so didn't want to help, so wanted to look away, they passed on the other side. And the audience would have laughed, the other side, right, the other side. And Jesus is challenging you and I. It's hard to discern what's helping, what's enabling, what's legitimate need, what's laziness, what's circumstances. It's easier to look away. Look away from people you care about who are struggling, people you care about who are stuck in temptation. It's easier just to look away. To go find some other route on some other path than to engage. But the third thing Jesus is doing is Jesus mentions here in the passage several times about Samaritans. A certain Samaritan as he journeyed together. Samaritan, Samaritan. He's going to challenge us, unlike the, the lawyer who wants to debate who's a neighbor and who's not. Well, I don't have to be nice to the Samaritans, do I? He says, I don't want you to debate who a neighbor is and who a neighbor isn't. I want you to just deploy neighborly behavior to everyone. And notice this word Samaritan, and I want you to remember that every time Jesus tells a, a story, he's always teaching the Old Testament. So remember Samaritans for a moment, and remember the basic story he told. And let me tell you another story from the Old Testament. There once was a man named Elisha, and Elisha was always messing around with the Syrians. And the Syrians were trying to destroy the Israelites. So the Syrian king would send garrisons of people to ambush 
strip, wound, and kill the Israelites. On their way to ambush other people, Elisha, a prophet of God, would see which path, which road they were going to go down, which road they were going to ambush them on. And Elisha would say, hey, king, don't go down interstate A. Let's go down path B because there's an ambush waiting. Well, the king is getting so frustrated. Of, of, there's an Israeli king and then there's a Syrian king. The Syrian king is so angry because all of his traps keep getting screwed around because somebody keeps giving out the plan. He's checking for leaks. He's checking for moles. Finally, he believes that Elisha has a word from God and he's the one that's ruining his plans. So he sends an entire garrison of soldiers with one mission to kill Elisha. And they find him. Elisha comes up. Hey, how's it going? Elisha walks out and goes, blind. And this whole garrison of Syrian army can no longer see. And in their confusion and in their difficulty, what do we do now? They hear a voice of someone who says, no, 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 that's not the way. This is the way. Come and follow me. And like, well, we're blind. It sounds like a helpful voice. And so they follow this man. It's Elisha. Dun, dun, dun. And Elisha marches the entire garrison trying to kill him and the king and his people and marches them directly into the city they're trying to overthrow. Dun, dun, dun. Lines them up. And now they are surrounded by Israeli guards. The doors are shut. Come, come, come. The king and Israeli soldiers are now surrounding the Syrian uh, garrison that had come in that are blind. And Elisha goes, Lord, open their eyes. And they open their eyes. and like, whoa! Oh, no. We were following Elisha, the guy we're trying to kill? Oh, no. We're inside the city we're supposed to destroy? Oh, no. Weapons against us everywhere? And the king of Israel turns to Elisha and says, My father, shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? Oh, and by the way, the name of the place he brought them into was called Samaria. Elisha led them to Samaria. And Elisha, who is face to face with his enemies, trying to kill him and kill the people in Jerusalem, is now asked by the king, Should we kill them? They deserve it. Woe do they deserve it. They've been hunting me specifically. And Elisha says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. Would we want their king to kill our POWs? Let's be a neighbor. In fact, instead of killing them, let's do the opposite. Set food and water before them. Let's give them a nice home-cooked meal. Let's let them eat and drink. And then let's let them go. Back to their master. So they, the Israelites and Elisha, didn't just not kill them. They prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, they sent them back to their master. And the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel because someone was neighborly to their enemies. See, Jesus is always teaching out of his Bible. And his Bible is the Old Testament. Now, at this point, there's a lot of good things for us to work on, right? I need to be a good neighbor. I need to realize there's people I don't want to love that God's calling me to love. I need to not look away from those situations. 
We need to deploy neighborly conduct to whoever it is. At this point, we could close the day and be done with the sermon. But if we did that, we would miss out what the whole sermon's really all about. Remember, by the end of Luke, Jesus is going to say that all of the scripture is about me. If you've ever seen a painting of the Good Samaritan, it can be pretty powerful to see someone caring for their enemy, to see someone giving care to their enemies. So we think there's the Samaritan and there's the certain Jewish man. But I want to propose to you that we've missed the heart of the story if we stop here. Let me just put the whole text up. If you just put the, 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 the text there of the parable of the Good Samaritan, let me retell you the story and tell you the elephant we missed. Because it's all about Jesus. You and I were walking through life and we got sabotaged, we got bullied, we got ambushed by our own sin. We couldn't save it, we couldn't stop it, we couldn't stop doing it. We got stripped of our dignity, we got bashed, and we got left for dead. And we couldn't save ourselves, we couldn't get ourselves up, we couldn't rescue ourselves. And so along came religion. And religion looked at us in our heap and said, can't you do anything? And religion was no help of all. It walked on by the other side. So we tried another religion. It came up to our place. It was embarrassed that we would struggle with such things and have such thoughts. And it walked on by. Then along came a Samaritan, our enemy. Someone we had turned our back on. Someone we'd used his name in vain. Someone we'd spit upon. And yet, though we were an enemy to him, he was not an enemy to us. And he came and he had compassion on us seeing that we couldn't save ourselves. He, he looked at us and he realized that we, we couldn't get ourselves out of the situation. So he was moved with compassion. And he bandaged us. It was by his stripes we were healed. And then he poured his oil upon us. Oil's always a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testament. And God poured his spirit into broken Stripped and left for dead people. And then, remember what the Samaritan did? He poured wine. The symbol of forgiveness. The blood of Christ. This is my new covenant. He poured that upon his enemies. Then he carried us when we couldn't carry ourselves. He put us on a donkey. He carried us. He took care of us. And then he gave two days wages. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. He said, I'm going to be gone for a while, probably about 2,000 years. And while I'm gone, I want you to know, I want you to take care of him. And when I return, when I return, I will repay you for how you have taken care of him. And the engine to be a neighbor is to see the scriptures all about Jesus. He is the good Samaritan. And you were the one beaten. And when you were beaten, he poured oil and generosity and lavishness upon you. And it's only when you understand what he has done for you that you can be a neighbor to those who hurt you. That you can begin to care and put yourself in the place of those who are unlike you politically, unlike you in their, their unique temptations that you would never struggle with. Because you see that Jesus was your neighbor. 
But if you want to be a good neighbor, you're going to have to overcome three objections. Three objections. Let me give you what those three are. They don't need it. They don't use it well. And I don't have it. Whether you're giving money or giving grace or giving second chances, you're going to say, well, they don't need it. They've had enough chances. They don't use it well. They didn't take the second chance very well. They didn't take that money I gave them last time and do a very good, very good management of it. And I don't have it to give. I don't have the resources to give. I don't have the money to give. I don't have the emotional resources to give. I, just, I, I can't do it anymore. Well, writing in 1730, Jonathan Edwards was wrestling with the Good Samaritan. If you want to read his account, you can look up Jonathan Edwards' Good Samaritan, or it's also accounted in Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. He noticed the increasing disparity in his community between the haves and the have-nots. And he wanted to challenge conventional wisdom. The Bible takes a very nuanced view of poverty. It says it's just very nuanced. Sometimes it's because of laziness. People are sluggards. Sometimes it's generational poverty. People have never seen somebody with a job, and, and they can't just go do it. Somebody needs to come alongside them and be a neighbor. Other times, if you think about neighborly conduct... It's somebody needs to reap what they sow. If you don't work, you don't eat. But Jesus really challenges here, and so did Jonathan Edwards, to apply the gospel to your thinking about poverty. There was a phrase going around in those days that said this, though they are needy, yet not in extremity. So the issue is don't give financially to the poor in my community because they're not extreme. Yes, yes, they're needy, but not in extremity. And that became the excuse to not give, to not serve, to not sacrifice. And Jonathan Edwards said, no, the gospel challenges us against that. Did God wait until you were in extreme, there was nothing else left before he was lavish to you? No. Quite the opposite. God lets it rain on the just and the unjust. God is gracious and kind to you. He doesn't doesn't help you only when you're at your wit's end. God is willing to, to reach out his hand at whatever level of poverty you're in. And so, giving financially to the poor, helping people in need, you don't have to wait until they're they're at the the very extreme place. The gospel compels us to say, what if I was that person? Do I only give to myself when I'm in extreme need? Or do I give to myself? Am I generous to myself when I'm even a little needy? And the gospel compels us to treat others the way we treat ourselves. Do they really need it? Maybe, maybe not. But I want to be as generous to others as I've been to myself. Edwards addressed another objection. They don't need it. They don't use it well. And this is legitimate, right? If you've ever tried to legitimately help somebody in poverty, you know they got in poverty often because they're not good at managing money. And so in Jonathan Edwards' day, people say, well, they're going to waste it anyway. They're not going to use it well. Why should I help? And Jonathan Edwards put some principles in place about reaping what you sow and not enabling and not being an ant that enables a sluggard. But then he challenged us with the gospel. How often has God entrusted lavish management of his stewardship to you and you've mismanaged it? Have you used every second of every day extremely well all of your life? If we took an account of every dollar you've ever spent, would we say, wow, not one dime was wasted? Oh, I can't believe I bought that thing off that TV show that one time. He said, 
God is lavish and generous to us even when he knows we squander opportunities and we squander his resources. Though while we don't want to enable bad behavior, let's not make that excuse for not wrestling with generosity. And poverty can be challenging, and there's aspects of poverty you may not have wrestled with before. One of my good friends, Donna Robinson, had two boys. She was white. They were both black, and, and they were good friends of mine. And Jerry and Joseph considered me their, their father. And I invested in them and loved on them. And we as a family wrestled with when were time to help out with her, her mortgage payment she missed and when are times that we were enabling. It's just, it's just messy being a neighbor. And I remember going over to Donna's house and playing video games with, with Jerry and Joseph. And as we were playing video games, I noticed something. Their video game set was much newer than mine. I was working off the Sega Genesis four generations back, and they had, were playing Tomb Raider when it first came out. And I'm like, I wish I had Tomb Raider. And I went, they're not using this well. You know, we're, no wonder they can't make rent. They're paying for video game systems that I can't afford. But in his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller was talking about a similar situation with a single mom. He was trying to get the deacons to help her one more time. Like, no, no, it's it's too late. We we don't want to help anymore. She's going to waste it some more. He said, let's remember, if you're a single mom and your kids always have to compete and always feel like they don't have the same clothes or the same shoes as, as all the other kids, you just feel like you're constantly a disappointment as a mom. You're not particularly good at money anyway, but every once in a while you want to say, yeah, I took some of that money and I bought a bike. Because I wanted them to finally have a happy Christmas. I wanted to finally feel like I could be a good provider. And the deacons in New York with Tim Keller wrestled and said, all right, that makes sense. Those are pressures we didn't account for. And we had to do it with our friend Donna. We do that with folks here at Horizon as well. Well, we need to have some accountability. We need to get you a a financial coach. Let's not just pull back because people are going to waste it. Let's remember how much we've wasted of God's before we get stingy on our generosity. Then the last objection, I think, to be a good neighbor, uh, Jonathan Edwards has a powerful quote here, is the idea that I don't have it. I have nothing to spare financially. I have nothing to spare emotionally. What Jonathan Edwards says, what you really mean is, I don't have it, meaning in order to give to that, I have to change my current plans. Spend less here, save less here. So it's not that you have nothing to spare. You mean I have nothing to spare without burdening myself. He said the gospel compels us that if the only time you carry someone else's burden is if it doesn't burden yourself, then you're never going to carry people's burdens. Let me read it to you in Jonathan Edward language. I'll try and get it. It's a little verbose. We in many cases may, by the rule of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we can't without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities are much greater than ours, and we see that they are not likely to be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with them and to take part of their burden upon ourselves. Or else, how is that role fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves? then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? If you're out of emotional resources and somebody tells you to forgive, you're like, I don't have it, then you need to be filled up by the Jesus who has it. Fill you up so that you can do it. Financially, to really wrestle with, am I not giving my time and talent and my treasure because I don't have it or because I don't want to burden myself? 
real giving will always reduce your choices. If your giving doesn't change your choices, then you're probably not giving. You're certainly not giving from anything but your surplus. So my challenge to you is to be lavishly generous. I hope you're lavishly generous to our church. I hope you're lavishly generous to things well outside of our church. I hope the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder. I hope there are things in your life that you stumble across. It's a foster care situation. It's someone in your life. It's someone who's wronged you. And the Holy Spirit says, it's time to be a neighbor here. And you find the painful process of learning to love your enemies and extend grace to your enemies. And as you do that, you're going to find God grows you and fills you with joy and gentleness and peace because you now know who the real good Samaritan is. It's not you. It's him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your incredible generosity to us. Make us people who pour our generosity back into your church, back into your community, to people we like and people we don't like. As we leave today, Father, we give your Holy Spirit permission to tap us on the shoulder and ask us, are we being a neighbor to everyone we see? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. See you all next week.